everybody out there in America or even other un-American countries. My name's Matt. <laughs> and I'm Steve. And this is a very special episode of Marvel Reread Club. Let's go ahead and play our theme music. All right, everybody, welcome back. We have our very first special guest ever on Marvel Reread Club. We are welcoming a very special guest, a person who has written a very incredible book. We are welcoming Douglas Woke. Welcome, Douglas. Good to be here. Thanks so much. Well, we invited you on the podcast. You're like, that sounds great. But isn't that exactly what they do on Marvel by the month? And I'm like, I don't know. I've never heard of that. So I looked it up and yeah, they do the exact same thing we do to a remarkable degree. And I had never heard of it, despite many attempts to Google to see if anybody else was doing this. And it turns out this is a very famous, well-known podcast, including it had several guests on there who I know, like Dan McCoy and Elliot Kalin, who are Facebook friends with me. And I post about our podcast all the time on Facebook. And you would think they would mention, uh, dude, there's another podcast just exactly <laughs> like yours. I think this means you have to have a misunderstanding fight and then team up and uh, fight, you know, like the Frightful Four. Yes. At first, we'll both arrive and go like, oh, you know, we've been told that we were that we would meet our worst enemies here. It must be you. And it's like, I was told I would meet my worst enemy here. It must be you. And then we'll fight for about 10 pages and then suddenly realize we've all been tricked. I, I, I think these days that's referred to as a Twitter beef. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, that's not the only one. There's also yeah. Make Ours Marvel. So yeah, we're 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 late to the game, but you know, we uh, uh, we do our best. There's yes. always room for more. Always. Excellent. Yes, we're certainly not first. We may not be best, but we have our own unique perspective. I like to think <laughs> we do yes. our own thing. So, Mr. Walk, let's talk about your amazing book. Oh my God, we both read your book. <laughs> And it is a hell of a thing, man. You did a lot of work. So why don't you tell us about your amazing achievement that you did for this book? So All of the Marvels is a book about reading all 27,000 Marvel superhero comics published from 1961 onward as a single narrative, as one gigantic half million page plus story that has been going on for 60 years and has at every turn reflected the culture of the world that made it and the world it was born into. So yes, it, it's, very it's that, so. it is, and it's a guide for the perplexed. I, I, I try to be a tour guide to the giant Marvel story. This It's not detailed synopses of everything in it. It's more like, these are not even the highlights. These are some trailheads, some interesting pathways, some ways to explore this enormous story, not chronologically, not going in any particular order, just wandering and going where curiosity leads you. Now, so obviously, we are chronological people here at Marvel Reread Club. <laughs> and we, you know, I've described how with my son, I'm like, hey, you know, my five-year-old son, I'd like to interest you in comics. I'd like to interest you in Marvel comics. <laughs> and he's like, okay, dad, what what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, let's read some Marvel comics, which is to say, let's read every single Marvel comic in order from the beginning. And so that's <laughs> what we started doing when my son was five and he is now seven and we are in 1968. Now, this, this is a thing roughly that my son proposed to me when he was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, and I talk about this a little bit in the book. He and I had read comics together since he was small, but never superhero comics because, you know, that's what my dad likes. Yeah. Which, no, he's right. I, right. That's what I do. Uh, 
But when he was about 10, he realized, oh, this is a complicated system. This is the kind of complicated system I like. And said, hey, dad, let's read all the Marvel comics in continuity order, not publication order, the order the events happen to the characters. I was like, okay, this this is great. This will last a week. It'll be a fun <laughs> week we have together. But yeah, I mean, he's 10. Well, you know, interest will last a week. And three months later, he had read about up to 1968 and was like, you know, dad, I'm much more interested in the modern crossover era in so many words. Uh, so that's when we started, you know, reading Civil War together and Secret Invasion and then going on from there. And he and my wife and I still read an issue together every night. Oh, and, wow. All three of you like gather around? Are you yeah, snuggle uh, up, all three of you? <laughs> we all snuggle up on the couch and uh, at the moment. So I have a podcast of my own. Yes, the voice you have your Dr. Doom podcast, which yes. is hilarious. I the- greatly enjoyed it. And I love that Like, not only are you like, I'm going to do a Dr. Doom podcast and I'm going to have guests to come on and talk about Dr. Doom issues, but at least at first, they're all doctors. You're just showing off how uh, how high class your, your <laughs> class of friend is. Well, they're, they're not all doctors. And uh, as I got into it, I realized that the most fun episodes are the ones where the people talking about Dr. Doom stories with me are not necessarily people who are even that into comics, uh, but people who have some kind of expertise having to do with whatever issue we're talking about. I discovered this very, very early on. Uh, there's an issue with the invaders uh, where you know, there, there's a scene where, you know, Hitler is in world war two going to see a Wagner opera. And I was like, okay, so the guest I'm going to get for this episode is going to be Alex Ross, not the artist, Alex Ross, the classical music historian. Alex Ross. <laughs> You're just showing off. You're showing off how fancy people, you know, and so, you know, Alex, Alex came on the show and we just talked for 45 minutes or rather he just talked for 45 minutes about Wagner's music in Nazi Germany. And it was amazing. Amazing. Uh, and then, you know, when, when, uh, we did like the wedding of, uh, Reed and Sue, I, the, the guest I lined up was a former wedding planner and photographer. So we just got to talk about the wedding from a wedding photography point of view. That is awesome. Wow. Yeah. yeah that is nice. Uh, <laughs> And most recently, um, we did an episode with a woman who worked for the State Department overseas for many, many years. And we really just sort of dug into the question of what does it mean that Dr. Doom has diplomatic immunity? And what can you get away with on the grounds of diplomatic immunity? Yes. Well, my all-time favorite, one of my all-time favorite Marvel panels, and I'm sure you have an epic list of your own favorite Marvel panels taken out of context, but there, it's from an episode of Supervillain Team Up. Where I think what I forget, is it Dr. Doom is working with Henry Kissinger, who is yep. there on panel mm-hmm. and Henry Kissinger has just intervened and told the Fantastic Four that because of diplomatic community, they're not allowed to arrest Doom. And one of them is saying, like, I don't think Henry Kissinger is entirely on the up and up here or something like that. <laughs> hey, Henry Kissinger actually also shows up uh, during Jack Kirby's Captain America run. Yes. He's he was he was a popular guy. He got around. <laughs> and he was I mean, he was an actual like Marvel villain in real life. He had the accent we all imagine Dr. Doom to have. <laughs> I, I imagine Doom's voice is a little more resonant, uh, a little deeper. I, I always put a little like reverb and uh, pitch it down a few steps whenever I read a line of his dialogue. Yes, I have my own. There are so many Eastern European villains in the early days of Marvel Comics. And I try to, like when I read the Harry Potter books to my kids, I had a different voice for all 200 characters. And 
when I pretty much have kept that up for Marvel Comics. And, you know, but inevitably you get so many Eastern European villains that I sort of have a go to Eastern European voice. And (laughs) Doctor Doom is a little more aristocratic than the executioner or your other average Eastern European villains. So he's got a little bit of distinctness, but just a little bit. Nice. But so this is just an absolutely mind boggling thing you have done. You just, the sheer quantity of it. At what point did you sell your book proposal? Did you go like, I'm, this would be a fun thing to do, but not if I'm not going to get paid for it. Let me see if I can sell a book proposal and then I'll get started. (laughs) Or did you go ahead and get started and then go like, oh man, I'd better go ahead and turn this into a book uh, in order to justify this insane project I've started? (laughs) Oh, I mean, at the point when I realized, okay, I kind of want to read them all. I thought this sounds like a book proposal. I should pitch it as one to make sure if I'm reading everything as opposed to like just reading what I'm reading with my kid or reading what I'm reading normally, I want to make sure I'm getting paid for it. Yes. Um, Because this could take a long while. And, you know, it it is a stunt. It is, you know, it's Stephen Merritt writing 69 love songs. It's, you know, it's uh, the year of living biblically or whatever. But it was also a way to have access to this gigantic story. Yes. so when, when you when you undertook this project, were you thinking, well, you know, I've already been reading Marvel Comics for much of my life, so I can already bank all of that stuff that I've read and just read the stuff you haven't read yet? Or were you going back and saying, no, starting with this project, I am going to read everything from this point? You know, I did decide, like, okay, I can I can count as read stuff that I've read already if I remember it really well, if I remember it really comprehensively. And then I realized like, oh, but if I remember it really well, I probably want to read it again. <laughs> so, so, I you can just, yeah. so so you you actually from the initiation of this project, you ended up re- reading all of it all over again? Not all of it, but a great deal of it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, some of it was great. It was like getting to read all the Claremont X-Men stuff over again was fantastic. Mm. Everything that I read changed while I was away from it. Yes. Uh, and because I changed and because I'd read other things. And I think there was a period like there's, there's like a couple of David Michelinie and Bob Layton issues of Iron Man that I remember reading going like, I remember this story beat for beat. This is exactly like I remember it. This hasn't changed at all to me. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> I remember at one point going back when I was a young man and rewatching the Star Trek, the next generation pilot and going like, okay, this originally aired when I was like a freshman in high school. And this is the first thing I've ever rewatched as an adult that I feel the exact same way about as an adult that I felt about as a kid. So I can sort of chart the beginning of my grown mind. And so now I can say, okay, anything I read after the age of 14, I can now say, okay, I've I've encountered that with an adult mind. I've encountered that, you know, with a mind where it's not necessarily going to be colored by kid glasses. But also, you know, re- rereading all of the Bethesda Avengers stuff, like when you read that stuff in one sitting back to back instead of, you know, strung along month to month, it reads really differently. And yes, it's really, really fun. I should also say, like, I did not read these things in any order. Yes. I, I grazed. I read whatever I felt like reading on any given day. And occasionally I would read like a big patch of something. 
And occasionally I would just, you know, like, okay, I'll read some stuff from this particular month and then I'll read some stuff by this artist and then I'll read whatever comics I can find that have Midnight in them. Midnight, the master of Kung Fu villain who then later also fought the Silver Surfer. Yeah. Because writers like to reuse the same characters even when Steve Englehart is at first writing Master of Kung Fu and later writing Silver Surfer. And it's like, oh, I'll bring back the same fedora-wearing Kung Fu fighting bad guy, except for now he's in outer space. He also had like a solo story in an Iron Man annual for no reason at all. Uh, but so I was reading all like whatever, and I had a giant spreadsheet because I'd gone to mikesamazingworld.com and I downloaded the spreadsheet of everything, and I was crossing stuff off the spreadsheet as I read it. And then at a certain point, I realized, oh, there's a big patch of this spreadsheet that I've been avoiding, haven't I? Which is how I ended up locking myself into an apartment for 11 days with a case of protein drinks and 30 years of Punisher comics. which you don't talk about much in the book so let's talk about i'm sure the hardest part of you writing this book was deciding what to talk about and what not to talk about if you read all of these comics you then had to go like but i'm not going to talk about 95 percent of them in this book and you so you begin with a long chapter on the fantastic four which makes sense as you sort of jump around and go through six years of fantastic four comics then you do thor okay that makes perfect sense But then you don't go through all of the Marvel canonical heroes. You don't go through all of the biggest heroes. Like, for instance, you don't do Hulk. And I'm wondering, was there a Hulk chapter that eventually fell away or got abandoned halfway through being written? Or did you decide right up front, I'm not going to do Hulk? I didn't decide right up front that I wasn't going to do Hulk. And I never actually wrote a Hulk chapter because by the time I got into it, Immortal Hulk was happening, and I was so into Immortal Hulk that I just wanted to leave it alone and let that happen. But there are a lot of chapters that got cut. I basically wrote this book twice. I read it the first time and turned it into my editor and then realized, oh, this is terrible. (laughs) This book is terrible. This book, it it is just me talking to the inside of my head. It does not communicate. It is not fun. It needs to be fun. It needs to be lighter than air. It needs to be a thing that can be read for pleasure, even if you're not interested in these comics. Yeah. And then I just had to go back and start from the beginning. I scrapped like 85 or 90% of what I had. Oh my God. Wow. And started over and then it ended up taking a really, really, really long time. Did you have a deadline? Had you contracted to turn the book in at a certain point? I had contracted to turn it in. I turned it in and my editor was like, I hate to break it to you, but this is not good. (laughs) <laughs> oh, okay. So it wasn't just you. You were not just telling your editor this is not good. Your editor was also telling you this was not good. My editor was also telling me this is not good. And I went back and I was like, uh, yeah, he's right. And I was like, okay, you know what? I need to make this good. He said, great, take as long as you like. I know you can make it good. And then I just worked and worked and workshopped and workshopped and threw out stuff and added stuff. I mean, the first version of the book did not like the X-Men chapter was like two pages. Oh my gosh. Mm. It was, it was bad. It was me just kind of dodging, engaging with this thing I had to engage with. There's a couple of things that I cut out of it that are taking on a different life. Now there was a chapter that was a completely fictitious history of Marvel in the sixties and seventies. It's kind of a sister to a chapter that's in there, but the, the idea was that, okay, this is a history based on the idea that the breakthrough comic of 1961 aesthetically and commercially was not fantastic Four number one, but Linda Carter student nurse. Yes. And mm-hmm. What happens if Marvel pours all of its creative energies for the next 10 years into doing comics about teenage girls and young professional women? 
Mm-hmm. And that ended up being like, I printed it up as a chapbook and it got mailed out as a bonus to everybody who ordered the copy from my favorite local comic store. Oh, nice. Books with Pictures in Portland, Oregon. Amazing, amazing store. That's great. There's a chapter about like the my 11 days of intense Punisher uh, <laughs> that I actually printed up and sold as a bonus thing. I just did like a tour of California and Nevada. And so I sold the, the tour stops on that. And subscribers to my Patreon are also going to get mailed a, a copy of that as an end of year thing. Oh, that's uh, awesome. I should do that. You know, I we've been meaning to start a Patreon for this podcast. I'm starting, I think, this week, a Patreon for my other podcast. And we're trying to go like, oh, what do we have for giveaway? I've totally got stuff for my new book that I uh, that I cut. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that would be awesome. I should give that away. So let me just- wait, wait, wait. Okay. Important, important details here. What is your other podcast and what is your new book? <laughs> my, uh, <laughs> I wrote a book called The Secrets of Story, Innovative Tools for Perfecting Your Fiction and Captivating Readers. That came out back in 2016. Uh, that then spun off into The Secrets of Story podcast. And it has been, the book has been very successful. The podcast has been very successful. And I have been very gratified by the success of both. And I have a follow-up book coming out in April called The Secrets of Character, Writing Heroes That Anyone Will Love. And I will be talking about that on this podcast and on my other podcast. And I am now a Penguin Random House author like yourself. I started off, my first book was published by Writer's Digest, which then went out of business, but then got bought up by Penguin Random House. So suddenly I found myself to be an author for a much bigger publishing house than I had started with. High five, PRH bros. Yeah, often... Often when your publisher goes out of business, that means that, oh, my book is out of print now and I'm, I guess I'm going to be a self-published author from now on. But, and I am a very, very negative person who thought that for a second. And then I'm like, no, I'm going to actually hope for the best this time. I'm going to actually assume that the best is going to happen. And then we found out a couple weeks later that we were all getting bought out by Penguin Random House, who was going to publish our books now. And we were all very happy. But yes, so that's what I'm working on. But let me just say, I let me just say what I should have said in the beginning here, which is that just you're just a fantastic writer. And, you know, as someone who also has the job of going through all of Marvel comics and saying what I think about them, I went ahead and read your book. And unlike me, you get paid to do this. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, right. I sort of felt like in that episode of The Simpsons where they're fighting the robots and Marge is ripping open a robot. And then suddenly she turns to Homer and she says, Homer, see all these wires inside the robots? That's why these work and your robot didn't. And I felt like while reading it, I felt like while reading your book, like, oh, see all these wires? This is why your book works and my book doesn't. Or this is why your book works and my podcast doesn't. Because I, uh, let me just say that like one particular turn of phrase that stood out to me is like, Claremont Sex Men with Byrne and then for much longer without him can be alarming or off-putting to readers picking it up 40 years later. On the surface, it looks more like contemporary comics than anything else of its era does, but it's distinctly unlike them. It's wordy and plotty. Its tone is overripe, like a stone fruit dripping juices with a hint of rot. I love that line. I love so many of your lines. You Thank just, you, so you know, <laughs> you have really written the hell out of this and you've really given a lot of thought to it and done the sort of work that we sort of can't do on our podcast because we're, we are not being selective like you are. We are getting hit by every page of every issue as it comes and don't have time to be as thoughtful or turn phrases that wonderfully. Uh- Thank you. Uh, I I don't know what to say, but I'm I'm just going to sit here and blush real hard. Oh, good. Um, good. So, so let's talk about. I mean, 
I have I have now read all of the Marvel comics from the beginning three times. I first wow. when well so, well well how how far no okay yeah let me let me <laughs> let me rephrase that. I have read all Marvel comics from the beginning to some point in the sixties. Okay, three times. First, I did it when I first got. So you know, I've been pretty open on this podcast about the fact that I started doing all this long before Marvel Unlimited existed. Okay. So wow. I went ahead and I downloaded off BitTorrent right. every Marvel comic. And because at the time there was no other way to do it, you know, right. I bought the essentials. I mean, I was spending money. I was giving them money however I could, e. but there was no other way to do this. And I was like, it's all on BitTorrent. I'm going to do it. I'm going to read everything. And I started reading everything and I read pretty far. And then later I wanted to read them to my son. So I've, I read them to my son and like I said, we're up to 1968 and then now I'm doing it with my brother. So this is my third time through. I have never gotten anywhere close to doing all of the 70s, all of the 80s, all of the 90s. I did a tremendous amount of the 80s at the time. I can certainly tell you that. Yes. But the closest thing I've ever done to what you did, certainly in terms of the scope, is before the Infinity movies came out, before Infinity War came out, I said, I want to reread the entire Marvel Cosmic Saga. Wow. So I made a file. Uh, well, <laughs> you've, nothing like you've done, but I made a file and I'm like, at first I'm like, I want to read all the Starlin comics. And I'm like, right. no, because I also, I absolutely love like the Engelhard Kree Scroll War. And I'm like, okay, so I got to put the original Kree Scroll War in there and the and the Engelhard Kree Scroll War before we get to the Starlin Silver Surfer comics. And then it just kept growing and growing and growing. I'm like, well, I should read every Galactus comic and I should read every <laughs> Galactus Herald comic. So I wow. should include all of that. Okay. And I should, and then eventually got to the point where it's like, okay, I'm going to pretty much include all of Fantastic Four. And then I'm like, okay, and I'm going to also include, I eventually realized I have to include all the Hickman stuff, which I hadn't read. And that I realized the Marvel, you sort of get into this and I'm sure it was tempting for you to just end your book with Secret Wars number nine, with Secret Wars second series number nine, which is very much like a conclusion of the entire Marvel saga. And at some point, you decided not to do that. You just go a little bit past it. What was that decision like? So that decision, um, the, the uh, stop. So nominally, I stopped with Marvel Legacy, which is where the Richards family comes back. It's like yes. okay, that that's that's a nice place. I knew I was going to have to stop somewhere. I knew I wanted to not have to read any more past some point or I would never, ever catch up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but then I kept reading past there anyway. But I just didn't, I didn't feel compelled to read everything. But I mean, I still, you know, I read all of the Quico and X-Men stuff every single week as soon as it comes out. I absolutely love those. But that, that seemed like a reasonable stopping place. And there was a point at which fairly early in the book, I did a history of the Marvel Universe in 45 minutes lecture at that store books with pictures. And I decided like, okay, let's decide that there are five major protagonists for the Marvel story. Let's arbitrarily pick the five protagonists. And one of them had to be Franklin Richards. And given that, that seemed like a good stopping place. And they ended up just kind of sticking with that. But really like when I started reading, I discovered that like a lot of the stuff I had initially ruled out was super, super interesting. The romance comics are fascinating. Uh-huh. Like yeah, because you start off by saying like, "Oh, there's certain comics I won't be covering at all. I won't right. be covering the romance. I won't be covering these." And then and so it becomes pretty clear as you read the book, like, "Oh no, you read a ton of that stuff. Yeah, you I, read I, the monster I, comics. You read the romance comics." I, I, I did manage to avoid Conan. <laughs> that, that and I did manage to avoid most of the westerns. My my the westerns are actually a giant blind spot for me. Like, for some reason, I cannot tell them apart. Uh-huh. Yes, I 
I can't tell the characters apart. I can't. They, they're just something in my brain refuses to process Westerns. I don't I, know why. I, I don't know if it's Westerns in general, but I mean, uh, you know, I haven't made much of an attempt at the Marvel Westerns, but yeah. I really have been unable to differentiate much of anything in them. They're, yeah. you know, well, <laughs> they're Doug, all, Doug they're Wildly, all kids with guns. Doug Wildly <laughs> did work that was really fantastic. So he did what he did, Rawhide Kid, I want to say. And uh, he then later went on to do a lot of Johnny Quest comics. He went on to do a lot of work for other yeah. people. And so, I know his Rio, which is lovely. But, yes, uh, Rio yeah. is just a yeah. gorgeous comic. And yeah. so he got started on Marvel Comics. And then he became really infuriated that they just kept running his 18 issues he did over and over again. And then they would just start <laughs> reprinting them again. And of course, he wouldn't yeah. get paid anymore for the two other uh. things. But so what I did a small fraction of what you did, but when I ended up reading what ended up being probably about 500 issues of this Marvel Cosmic Saga, starting with Fantastic Four number one and ending with Secret Wars second series number nine and covering all of the cosmic comics, wow. is that I just found it to be really hard to deal with the darkening of the Marvel Universe as I huh. went. And like, you get to... Jonathan Hickman's New Avengers, and they realize, you know, this is a 50-issue storyline, and I think there just should never be a 50-issue storyline. It was, <laughs> it is a long storyline. All of these modern storylines are so long. And in the first issue of this 50-issue storyline, New Avengers number one, they find out, oh, there's these other universes. They're going to try to merge with us in a, in a style that is very much like Crisis and Infinite Earths. And these other universes are going to try to merge with us, and that will destroy us. So we should probably just commit genocide and destroy these other universes. And they have already gotten so far along this thought in the very first issue of this 50-issue storyline that Captain America, Iron Man has already, this has already occurred to Iron Man and the other members of the Illuminati, Captain America has already said, oh, I have figured out what you're thinking. I'm going to stop you. And then they wipe Captain America's memory. And that happens at the end of the first issue of the storyline. And I'm like going, how dark have we gotten if they are already assuming at the end of the first issue that they're going to be engaging in genocide to solve their problems? And I just found it very hard to take. And very like I've said before on this podcast that really to me, in terms of the Marvel Universe getting darker, the real turning point for me is... A pr the first appearance of the Illuminati is when they originally show up and they're like, oh, we have to stop the Hulk. We have to send the Hulk to another planet because he's killed 5,000 people. And that is like, okay, it's one thing to say things are going to be dark from this point on. And it's another thing to say all, all that stuff you already read, all those Hulk comics in which the Hulk never killed anybody. And I've read hundreds and hundreds of Hulk comics right. and there's never a, this is the issue where Hulk killed somebody issue. And they're like, oh no, that was silly kid stuff you were reading, but they were just prettying it up and they weren't mentioning the fact he was killing thousands of people all this time. And now we're going to admit to you that all along and all those Hulk comics you were reading, that was, you were reading some sort of fictionalized version of the Hulk's own adventures. And he was in fact killing people that whole time. And that to me is sort of where I say, I'm out, like, because you're not just darkening things going forward, you're darkening things going backward. So you, my big question for you is, and, you know, I say I'm out. And of course, let me just include the caveat. And you have to include these caveats in your book as well. Whenever you talk about like, oh, I prefer the older classic stories, then you're always setting yourself up to be told 
oh, so you're a racist who likes the old comics back when it was all white people doing them and you don't like them now that non-white people are doing them. And I'm like going, well, first of all, I'm having problems with like Bendis and Hickman stuff and these are very white men, but that's just not true. I love Captain Marvel. I love G. Willow Wilson's work. I love so many things. I absolutely love it. But there is this darkening that is just very hard for me to take. And so this was my big question for you when I was reading this book is how you must have just, especially because you weren't reading them in order, this whiplash, this moral darkening, this moral whiplash must have just been intense for you while you were writing this book. Okay. So uh, first of all, to the, to the Hulk point, what's interesting is that around the same time, you've got Greg Park writing the Hulk and he's writing you know, Amadeus Cho and he's writing Bruce Banner and he's got this whole thing where like, yeah, there's the genius Banner part operating in the Hulk's brain who is the reason that he's never actually killed anyone. And so, so Pac said he'd never killed anybody at the same time Bendis yeah. was saying he had been killing people? Yeah, and Bendis doesn't say it. Bendis implies it very strongly, but he doesn't come out and say it. It is deniable. There is a way to, you know, stick the thin end of, thin end of the wedge in there. Where it's, it's how many this time? Like 27, two kids and a dog. There is this dark, dark stuff going on. And there's also absolutely light, playful, joyful stuff going on. It's a different kind of story. It's multiple kinds of stories going on at once. And I think one of the genius things about the Hickman story about the, the giant Hickman run. And I love that it's 93 parts long and I love that it's 93 parts long and through plotted. Like there is stuff at the very end that has very clearly been set up from the very beginning. Oh uh, yeah. No, it's amazing. That That's, I, I don't object to its length, but what he does is that he finds like, yeah, this is, this is what these characters have in them. And have had in them all along and the the really interesting thing about the like okay yeah let's maybe make some doomsday, doomsday weapons is that over and over and over again in the new avenger side of the story there are reasons why they don't have to be genocidal they don't have to trigger their doomsday weapons there's always somebody else who takes care of that for them or some way that they manage to get out of it until they don't yes and that's and that comes after close to 30 issues and it is an absolute like bearing down on you for five issues straight grind of like oh my god how are they going to get out how are they going to go oh god they're not going to get out of this are they and that's an amazing effect it is not something that's kind of imposed on them out of the blue it builds and builds and builds to it in ways that are totally consistent with the characters as we've known them for 60 years um, so I mean, that is a shocking claim. You were making a big claim. You're <laughs> saying that you're saying that all of these different writers writing for all of these different years are writing in a way that is morally consistent with each other, which, you know, I have not found. I, I find it really hard to read to read what I consider to be one 60 year storyline. And I'm like, this is not morally consistent. But you have carved out a headspace for yourself in which this <laughs> all fits together. Yeah. I mean, Tony Stark is an arms manufacturer from the get-go. Like right. that that is who he is. He makes weapons. Which which of which of the Illuminati does this seem surprising for you? Namor? Like Namor's been pretty ruthless. Namor practically drowned New York City. Yeah. 
I no, I mean it's true. Well, I mean even just going through Namor, then like yeah. Namor, even by the time he tries to drown New York City and then he's starring in his own book, you're still dealing with Stanley writing or quote writing unquote. But <laughs> but there's a tremendous amount of. I mean, I don't find the '60s to be very morally coherent, morally consistent. I find that there's just surely to a certain extent the Marvel universe must have suffered by forcing things to be read together, which were never intended to be read together in one sitting. You didn't find that? You didn't find that there were any points where you're like, uh, this is this is either not consistent or not coherent or even hypocritical or damning to read these things side by side? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I found Civil War and what what Reed Richards gets up to in Civil War to be more out of character. Yes. That that so. kind of that kind of ends justify means. And even through, you know, all of the Hickman stuff, like he has moral revelations in Hickman's Fantastic Four about who he is and what his values are and finding himself in this ends justify terrible means situation in New Avengers when we see the characters pushed to the brink we see T'Challa who is in the position to do the thing he has to do to defend Wakanda and folds he was like no I absolutely can't do this it is the thing that I must do and it is wrong and I won't do it that is him drawing his line in the sand and drawing his line in the sand in a way that ends up echoing through the next five, six years of Black Panther stories, which is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the one who actually pulls the trigger is Namor. Yes. Which, and that is who he is. He, yeah. he will do the terrible thing if he has to, which is real interesting. Wow. So you are, so you are, <laughs> you are the ideal person to do this job. You are someone who is like, <laughs> you're like, I am not, I am I'm never going to throw Marvel under the bus here. I'm never going to, I'm I mean, going to, I'm going to say, I mean, there's a, there's I'm a gonna lot make of this work in my there's mind. A, there's a lot of genuinely terrible comics. Uh, but if you see a character do something and go like, well, that's not what that character would ever do. Like, well, they just did. Mm. Uh, and now you have to either figure out a way to make that story not count or, reassess who that character is or decide that the story is not for you, which is also a completely fair response. Brian Cronin was recently talking about on Comics Should Be Good how every discussion of Henry Pym always centers around the minute that he hit his wife, either, you know, it was supposed to maybe not be as intentional as it was in the art. And he talks about like, but that's not true of Peter Parker, who also hit his wife. And it's like, well, we have all just agreed. We have all just agreed to never speak again of the story of the very similar panel in which Peter hits Mary Jane, possibly accidentally, possibly on purpose. And it's like, well, that was so clearly out of character for him that that was just a bad story that never happened. And, but with Henry Pym, we just can't do that. We just lack the ability to say, okay, that was just a bad story that never happened. And so everything, every time we discuss Henry Pym, we have to discuss it in the context of that panel. So it's a meme. Um, (laughs) It's a meme. We we don't see Magneto individually killing every sailor on board that submarine he sank. Yeah. But you know, if we did, that might be a meme. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's funny you bring up that thing in the Avengers. That is right around the time that Matt and I began collecting comics was right around uh, Henry Pym's downfall. 
<laughs> that, uh, as I, I was uh, saying a little bit on an earlier discussion, which I don't think has uh, aired, the irony is that the comics that hooked us in the first place when we were five and eight are pretty universally reviled by most <laughs> longtime Marvel fans. It was, uh, you know, in the, the early 200s. Right around, uh, what is it, 207 was the first one? Like somewhere yeah. right around in there. And yeah, just about everyone is like, oh, wow, wow, that's the dark ages of Avengers. And we're like, man, that's what introduced us and hooked us yeah. right from the beginning. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people I know have a, a, a lot of sense of betrayal about what the writers and uh, storytellers did with Henry Pym. But right. of course, that's how we were introduced to the character. You so know, on the Henry Pym front, have you ever read the miniseries uh, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes 2? No, I have not. Roman numeral two. Nope. It's fascinating. It is a reclamation job on Henry and Henry and Janet's wedding, <laughs> which the, was already a messed up story long before yes. he ever hit her. That was right, yeah, that was it, not a healthy beginning for a relationship. That story is an unbelievably messed up story, uh, which was apparently like scripted by Roy Thomas on his honeymoon, which is kind of scary to think. <laughs> <laughs> So, wow. Uh, yeah. So this, for, as, as a brief recap for our, our listeners at home, this character we've, we've quote, never seen before called Yellow Jacket shows up, roughs up Jarvis, starts beating up the Avengers, claims that he has murdered Henry Pym and demands to be admitted to the Avengers and then um, grabs Jan and kisses her and demands that she marry him. And then they get married the next issue. And <laughs> at the end of which he's revealed to have been Henry Pym all along. This yeah. is unbelievably messed up. And somehow none of the Avengers notice that this guy is their friend. <laughs> so what is up with that? So Earth's Mightiest Heroes 2 is one uh, well, Okay, of... I'm sorry. I did read this. Joe Casey, oh. yes. Okay, yes, yes. Yeah. I did read this. This was yeah. a fascinating yeah. comic. So this is a story that takes place in and around the wedding, and it is scenes from between the scenes we see in there where Janet comes to her friends and is like, look, Henry is really not well. <laughs> Um, he's got this, you know, inadequacy thing going on. He's come up with this alter ego for himself. And uh, there's an agent of shield. Who's like a psychological expert. Who's like, he's unstable. We just have to let him go through this. Just, just play along guys. Okay. Just play along. We'll all get through this. Yes. It's sort of like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead version. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is a way of making that original story slightly less horrible. Yes. So, <laughs> so you are reading all of these yeah. and you are reading the original Roy Thomas Avengers wedding story. And you're like, well, this is pretty horrible, but I just have to accept it because I'm reading this right now. And then later you're encountering this other story and you're like, oh, good. This helps redeem this previous thing I read that I have been. I mean, you have to have something going on in your head where you're like, okay. This, what am I going to hang on to? What am I going to consider to be part of this big story? And what am I going to be rejecting as apocryphal or assuming there must be some other explanation like that? And it's like, oh, thank God that other explanation has come along <laughs> and now I can help redeem these stories in my head. Like, I mean, in terms of Peter Parker hitting Mary Jane, like, what do you do with Peter Parker hitting Mary Jane? Uh, I just go, oh, and keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, just, and then, I mean, but like I said, Brian Cronin says that this is something that we've all just sort of agreed didn't happen. Were there things where you were like, if I'm going to keep reading all of these Marvel comics, this is a story that just I'm just going to have to say didn't happen. Were there any stories like that? Um, it's not that I have to say it didn't happen, but I also don't have a lot invested in thinking of these characters as my friends. Right. Mm-hmm as people that I want in my life. Uh, There's a lot of real messed up characters. I enjoy seeing messed up characters being messed up. This is why I love Hellions, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) which is just entirely horrible, horrible, horrible people being horrible to each other. And it's amazingly entertaining. The last series I read for this project, I I saved Thunderbolts for dessert. Yes, I love Thunderbolts. I love Thunderbolts and Thunderbolts is all horrible, horrible people being horrible to each other. And it's so entertaining. They are not people that I would invite over for dinner, but I'm happy to read about them. (laughs) Right. But yeah, I mean, you get a lot of people going like, if we're going to enjoy Fantastic Four comics, then we have to deal with these very embarrassing early comics in which Reed was horrible to sue. Oh, how can we deal with these issues and still like Fantastic Four? And I'm like, I feel like he was a very rich character and his mistreatment of Sue, I feel like, was entirely believable, entirely in character for a guy who calls himself Mr. Fantastic, <laughs> and and not something where I'm like, oh, boy, that sure was a mistake that Stan Lee made writing read like that. I'm like, no, I think he was writing about a toxic masculine man, about a man who had a lot of toxic masculinity going on. And I think he was portraying him well, and he was showing like, yes, isn't it ironic? I think that people often read old comics and they assume that irony hadn't been invented yet. And they're like, oh, this this is something that doesn't match up, you know, or isn't morally consistent or morally, morally scrupulous in these old comics. And so therefore it was either a mistake or it's something that we now realize didn't match. And I'm like, no, they knew that it didn't match. It was irony. This was ironic that he was mistreating his wife so badly, verbally, you know, not he wasn't hitting her, but he was he was engaging in a lot of belittlement of his wife, which I think was, I think he was doing it, I think Stanley was writing it that way partially so that she could get her own back and she would often stand up for herself and she would show her strength of character that way. And I guess she didn't leave him until Stanley was off the book, like shortly after Stanley was off the book. <laughs> then the, the Jerry Conway came in and was like, uh, wouldn't she just leave him? But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, like I always refer to it as like, when I was a kid, I would play Monopoly and I would get the card saying, you've won $10 by coming in second place in a beauty contest. And I would think, oh, they didn't realize when they made this game how silly that card was. Like we now are much more sophisticated people and we now with our sophistication can go back and look at that card and see that card is actually rather silly. But of course, at the time when this game was made in the 1930s, they had no idea this card was silly. And it's like, yes, they knew. Like It was only years later that I realized like, yes, that was an intentionally silly card. And the, in the past, they were capable of writing stuff that was ironic in the past. And then that was a major revelation for me. Great. I mean, I don't have to hold absolutely every detail of every issue in my head and call it canon and say that this is a thing that we'll have to deal with forever. There's there's stories that are like, yeah, okay. I mean, if that happened, that would have some consequences that we would have to deal with. But, eh, you know, 
it's a story. Fine. We, we, those are not the stories that we care about. Those are not the stories that stick in our head as like the, the high points, the moments, uh, the moments that we care about, the moments that we remember, the moments that we bring forward. Yeah. Those moments are, are, they are telling as cultural artifacts. I don't think they are necessarily like the pivotal moments of the big story. Well, I mean, whenever anybody does what you do, or to a lesser extent, what we do, then you always have to ask the question of art versus artifact. To what degree do I see this as art? And to what degree do I see this as artifact? To what degree do I see like, oh, this is a fascinating window into what people were thinking about in 1962, or this is a piece of art that was created that still should speak to me today in somewhat the way that its creator originally intended it for it to speak to me. And when you sold your book to Penguin Random House, did they have any questions for you about like, wait a second, are you going to be talking about these books as artifacts or are you going to be talking about these books as art? No, they actually had none, nothing like that. They just, they, all they cared about was that I talked about them like interestingly and entertainingly. Right. I, I will say that there's one... One thing that people have been bringing up a lot is like, so you're thinking of this as a gigantic novel. Like, no, it's not a novel. It is an evolving piece. And the thing about novels is with very few exceptions, you know, serialized novels, you can't revise it once part of it is out in the world. No. Every part is just improvised from what is before it. You can't realize a few years in like, oh, this is the shape of the thing and I need to change the earlier parts to be part of that shape. The only way in which that happens is something like, you know, the uh, X-Men Grand Design books or uh, there's there's life story things that are coming out now that Mark Russell is doing his Fantastic Four life story thing right now. And the first issue of that is fascinating because it is treating the beginning of the Fantastic Four story as you would treat it if it were intended to be a novel, if it were intended to have all the themes and all the ideas that were in it later on from the beginning, planted from the start. The first issue is a mashup of the Fantastic Four's origin and the Galactus story and this man, this monster. Huh. It is all of those things together. It is about the origin immediately followed by you know, the scientist from this man, this monster, like feeling that he's been passed over by Reed and trying to take his revenge and dragging him into this otherworldly zone where Reed sees a vision of Galactus who is coming for the world. Oh, that's great. Hmm. And that's what you do if you're doing a novel. That is what you do if you're doing a story that has its end planted in its beginning. And that's not what Marvel is. Marvel's just a whole whole different thing. Yeah, <laughs> and you were, but so you were. I mean, are you? Do you think you're the only person who's ever done this? Do you think you're the only person? Because I often I, I read Brian Cronin's comment column that comics should be good, and he often gives the impression he's read every single Marvel comic ever. And I'm like, has he really? He may I'm, be one person who's done it. How many people do you think have done this? I know for sure that two other people have done it. Their names have are being protected to, to defend the guilty, <laughs> um, and I suspect that I suspect that there's a, a handful more. I definitely not the only person who's done this. But you're the only person who's written a book about it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I got there. You know, there. There were people who at some point had read everything. The people who made the initial like Marvel chronologies, like uh-huh. read everything. Peter Sanderson up to a certain point had read everything. Oh, yeah. And yeah. There, there, there are some others too. 
But I wrote a book. Other people have not yet written books. If somebody else <laughs> writes a book, I will be first in line to buy it because I would love to see some other takes. Well, there's so much. I mean, it's just, I mean, I just can't believe your self-control to read <laughs> all of these comics when you would only be able to write about 5% of them. I but, was getting paid for it. Um, <laughs> well, also, I, I also am a Penguin Random House author, and I know for a fact you were making minimum wage. I know yeah. for a fact you, <laughs> the number of hours you spent on this project, you made less than minimum wage on, like the, my, on my, the total amount of work you did. Like my, my, my favorite st- story that I keep telling on this tour, somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, like, so did you actually read every issue of NFL Super Pro? And it's like, <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, I did read every issue of NFL Super Pro. And in one of the issues near the end, there's a parody of the mythopoetic men's movement of the early 90s. And you're just not <laughs> going to find something like that in a good comic. Wow. Well, oh, an it's unintentional, like, you mean an unintentional parody? No, it's a deliberate parody. Oh my God. Yeah, like, no, like the whole yeah. Iron John thing, exactly. that sort of stuff? Exactly. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Okay. It was a thing. Once again, <laughs> yeah. these things reflect the culture, right? Totally uh, was. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. Well, uh, did you, you didn't do New Universe at all, did you? I had actually read the New Universe stuff already. So. Well, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I will say, like, I like DP7 a lot. Mm-hmm. And Marshall Rogers drew a couple issues of Spitfire and the Troubleshooters. And yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of New Universe stuff is really bad. But they, it's not, it is not without its saving graces. Oh yeah, yeah. No, there, there were a few, a few nice things in there. Yeah. Uh, not including Kickers Incorporated, however. That that I will not include in. I the, do uh, have a friend uh, who will go to the wall for the first issue of Kickers Incorporated. I do ooh. disagree with that friend. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's. I don't believe I would have said that out loud. So, but you know, one thing you were saying about the uh, well, Matt, you were talking about the art versus artifact thing. It's funny. That's sort of where I live personally, is right at the intersection between art and artifact. I was a history major in college, and I had meant to major in art and, you know, become a cartoonist, but then I forgot and I ended up majoring in history (laughs) by accident. So in my senior year, I was like, oh, wait, I've been studying medieval history. What am I doing? I need to get back to comics, but I'm already a history major. So I ended up writing a thesis on New Yorker cartoons in the 1920s. Oh, wow. What really got me about that, what hooked me was a, um, and I'm sorry, we're getting off topic here, but we can we can cut this if need be later. <laughs> In the way that I love, please continue. Um, okay, so uh, my mom had a collection of the best New Yorker cartoons of the first 25 years. And it was grouped in five-year groups. So you had a chapter of cartoons from 1925 to 1930, from 1930 to 35, 35 to 40. And um, I found this utterly fascinating, both in terms of art and artifact, in that I love New Yorker cartoons, right? And uh, But what it really did was it... it how, how are you going to learn about how people were in a time better than if you figure out what makes them laugh, you know, yeah. and not, ju- not in the grand sort of what, but no, just sort of like, you know, what little thing's going to make them laugh. And the one that really hooked me was a cartoon by a woman named Alice Harvey, who is pretty obscure. Like I wanted to do more about her, but she, she drops off the face of the earth. But um, you saw a, uh, a young man and a young woman flirting with each other. The guy's moving in. She is like all looking kind of demure. And uh, then a couple of old matrons are sitting on a porch. And uh, one of them says to the other one, isn't that cute? They're talking about sex. And this was, you know, from like 1928 or something like that. 
And that just blew my mind. And then there's all a bunch of other stuff I ended up going into with that. There's one where it's like two coal miners and then the phone's ringing and the other one says the other, it's Mrs. Roosevelt calling. And... <laughs> I'm like, okay, there was clearly a whole deal going on here where she was like talking about reaching out to coal miners or something like that. <laughs> oh yeah, there's all sorts of stuff like that in there that's, that's really just fascinating. Anyway, so so, but just a bit of a digression, but just talking about art versus artifact, that I, I, I do not make much of a differentiation there. If you can mash those two together, that's that's my sweet spot. Well, we, yeah, had to sort of, we had to sort of decide on this podcast to what degree we would be talking about these comics as art and artifact. And one reason we're talking about the comics we are is because we want to do something where it could be both. We didn't want to, you know, we talked about just doing like a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast or something, but then it would just be us geeking out and being fanboys. We had to have something where we could sort of talk about it as like set ourselves apart from these things so we could make some fun out of it. We couldn't make enough fun out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe right. and we had to be able to make some fun. Yeah, and the distance from it in time helps a lot with that. I mean, I'm sure that the comics coming out right now, if we look at in 10 years, we're going to go like, oh my God, those comics are so 2021. Oh, those poor people, <laughs> those poor traumatized people. Look at the comics they were making. I'm real curious to see what it looks like with a little bit of distance. Yeah, I my other podcast, uh, my co-host James Kennedy hates all things Marvel, and he, you know, people were telling him you got to watch One Division, you got to watch One Division, mm. you'll love it. And so then he went ahead and watched One Division, and he liked the first couple of episodes. But then when it cut to Darcy and Jimmy Woo in modern day dealing with these things, he was like, you know. They're doing this first episode and they're saying, oh, weren't things, weren't, wasn't TV silly in the 50s? And then, oh, wasn't TV silly in the 60s? And wasn't TV silly in the 70s? And then we cut to these modern day characters dealing with modern day Marvel Cinematic Universe type stuff. And I'm supposed to not be saying, oh, don't things, you know, isn't storytelling ridiculous now? Yeah. Like we're supposed to suddenly stop saying, isn't this storytelling ridiculous? Because I consider this storytelling to be the most ridiculous of all. Because he just hates this stuff. He just hates right. the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right. And he hated WandaVision because it brought in that element. And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, you've got to, I mean, I certainly have said to my daughter, she has a very hard time dealing with anything old that has any sort of morality that we don't approve of today. Right. And she's like, oh, how could they not have known? How could they not have known how horrible this stuff would look later? And I'm like going, so do you realize, Lily, that at some point there could be a shift on eating meat where people are going to say eating meat is wrong. It was always wrong. We've undergone a cultural shift. And now we're all vegetarians now. And when we look at old art in which they were eating meat, we're just horrified. And it's going to be the same sort of thing where we're like, we read stuff involving slavery now and we're like, oh, how could this work have condoned slavery? And didn't they know slavery was wrong? And it's like, well, you know, everybody loved slavery at the time going, no, they didn't. There were all these abolitionists at the time. There were all these people saying slavery was wrong. Why weren't they listening to them? It's like, well, you know, abolitionists were a radical 5% of America. And it's going to be the exact same thing with meat where we could end up in the same way with meat where it's like well everybody was eating meat at the time everybody thought it was fine it's like well there were vegetarians weren't there just like there were abolitionists in the 19th century there were vegetarians in the 20th century who were saying this was wrong why weren't you listening to them and it really sort of blew my daughter's mind when she's like <laughs> <laughs> she's like wait what <laughs> like, and i'm like saying it could happen man you know this there are going to be moral changes in our lifetime maybe not in my lifetime but in your lifetime where Things you're doing now will just seem unconscionable later on. Yeah. Okay. So, so what month are you up to in the podcast normally? May 1963, I believe. May 1963. Okay. 
as the 60s go on, you are going to see changes in the attitude toward the war in Vietnam that are fascinating. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And you're and it's going to seem like that just from distance of a couple of years from the you know perspective of 1968. How could we have thought that in 1963? Yes. Right. Where were yeah. we coming from? And where that comes in more than anything else is in Patsy Walker and Patsy and Heidi. <laughs> wow. How so? Buzz Baxter graduates from high school and goes off to the army. And then six months later, he comes back and he is traumatized. Oh Something my gosh. horrible has happened. He breaks off his engagement with Patsy. He can't even talk to her. He won't even see her. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. And this isn't so, Patsy and Hebe and Patsy Walker. And this is these are comics you swore you wouldn't read. So if you're, <laughs> if yeah, you're read all anything. this amazing stuff well, in the well, comics no, you swore like, you no. wouldn't read. Uh, no, I mean, Pat, Patsy... Patsy Walker and Patsy and Heidi are full on in the Marvel universe. They are, uh, they are mapped in there a little bit later. It is a little bit yeah. of gerrymandering. Uh, Patsy becomes Hellcat. Right. And right. Uh, but uh, they're, they're part of, they're part of the story like that. Those plot lines more or less continue into when she shows up in uh, defenders. Yes. Yeah, well, and then you know, Buzz Baxter becomes a villain. Exactly. Yeah, and th- those defenders issues were right during our our youth, our our salad days as uh, right. as, as Marvel fans, and so uh, we were first introduced to Patsy Walker as Hellcat, um, right. and uh, uh, so then later we had to learn like, wait, what? There was a silly girl comic with yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, you mean the the woman who's now married to the son of Satan yes. was? <laughs> um, so what, what what's your take on? how Marvel is in the greater, you know, entertainment universe, Not, the MCU in particular, but then also like the Netflix shows and stuff like that. Like what's, how do you relate what they're doing there to what you put together with what they were doing in the comics over the, over all these years? So my favorite thing about the MCU is how completely unfaithful it is to the comics, how it <laughs> feels no obligation to do what the comics are doing, how it treats the comics as a gigantic supermarket full of ingredients, some of which work in, in film, in live action, in TV as well or better than they do when they are drawn by somebody's hand. And that's great. And it means that they are devoted most of all to like doing something that's really entertaining and diverting and moving and interesting for the eyes and works as a movie. If, you know, when they pick up little Easter eggy stuff from the comics, that's fine. Uh, that is entertaining. I love spotting those. It was you know fun to go to Shang-Chi and see like a little uh, mention of Golden Daggers. Shang-Chi, the movie is real real different from master of kung fu the comic it's very different it's very different it's It's also really good yeah and it drew the thing from the comics that translates to an interesting movie that works in the context of 2021 and doesn't require the massive amount of backstory it would take to salvage all of the british secret service stuff which is a lot of what i love about master of kung fu but it works just great as a movie uh, I actually have a my, my one big critique of Shang-Chi as a movie is that there are two huge structural problems that could have solved each other. What's that? Can I digress into this for a sec? Oh, by all means, please do. Okay. 
Um, this is this is more along Matt's lines of his other podcast here. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Let, let's go ahead and bring this in. There are two structural problems. One of them is that Katie becomes the secondary heroine and uh, gets to like shoot the perfect shot that saves the day. Which, like, what? <laughs> no, like, like that. That that is not where that character is going. It is entirely unearned. I see why you want to set her up to be somebody important in the future, but that's like she has just picked up a bow for the first time, like two days before, if that. And it that just does not scan. I agree. The, uh, the other big structural problem is that the big victory at the end is in a movie that is very much about this character and his progression and secondarily like Katie's character and her progression. It gets resolved with a giant two dragon fight. Yes. And it's where just, our hero is just sort of hanging on to the back of one. Our hero is just sort of hanging on. And the way to solve this was staring me in the face. I realized as soon as it came out of the movie, what's the thing that Katie is absolutely amazing at? And it's established from the very first scene she's in in the movie. She's an incredible driver. She, you know, she can drive through any kind of traffic. She drives the bus through that phenomenal fight scene. Uh, she drives the car through the forest where everything is attacking them. If she is on top of the dragon and driving it and steering it, and that's how that conflict gets won, then she gets her place. The dragon fight has a place in it. Shang-Chi gets to have his victory be his personal growth and his confrontation with his father, and it all works. That's mm. a great note. That's an excellent <laughs> note. I, I agree. Those were two big issues that I had with that movie. Yeah. And that they didn't. Let me just say, I just love your Master of Kung Fu chapter. I would say of the 25 Marvel movies, the only one where I said afterwards, I wish this was more faithful to the comics was Shang-Chi. Huh. That was the only one where, you know, because even, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I think you and I are both hardcore Starlin fans central to the Marvel universe. I think for both of us is the Starlin saga. It's so it's amazing that I made it through the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, which was until Shang-Chi, I would say the most unfaithful Marvel movie. And I was like, yes, I'm willing to deal with the fact that this movie is just balling up most of Jim Sterling's work and throwing it in the trash can to a certain extent. And, you know, it's like, well, we really liked when Trax was dumb for a couple of years in the nineties. So let's just go ahead and make that Trax and let's go ahead and do these, these various things we're doing. And I loved it. I loved this movie Guardians of the Galaxy that completely rewrote the comics and just cherry picked a few things from them. But then I saw Shang-Chi and I'm like, I just love those Mensch Galaxy issues so yeah. much. And then also Mensch Sack and also Mensch Day. And I had absolutely no contact with this movie. I don't watch trailers. I don't read reviews. I had no idea what was going to happen. So I went into this movie expecting him to be going on missions for the British Secret Service. <laughs> and I was very disappointed that he wasn't. And it was really much more of an Iron Fist movie than a Master of Kung Fu movie because we've got this hidden city Crazy. in China that you can't find except for by mystical means. And we've got dueling dragons that live there. And it's like, well, this is all Iron Fist. This has nothing to do with Master of Kung Fu. And I was like, I kind of, I think this is a good Iron Fist movie, but man, I miss Blackjack Tar. I miss, <laughs> I miss the British Secret Service. I realize that you can't do Dennis Nalen Smith. I realize you can't do Fu Manchu. But I was very excited when they announced they were going to do a Shang-Chi movie because I'm like, oh, Marvel's going to have their own James Bond now. 
we're going to have the Marvel version of James Bond. And right. I love James Bond. I love Marvel. And I was just really looking forward to merging the two. And you could tell that your book had to be rewritten to it. You know, this is one of the few places in your book where you say, like, I had to rewrite this chapter yeah. because you're like, you clearly you'd been building up to your whole Master of Kung Fu chapter going like, this will never be in a movie. They're never right. going to make a Master of Kung Fu movie, but I think these comics are worth reading. And then you sort of had to tack on an agenda yeah, like, going like, actually, they are. Yeah, <laughs> they are making a movie of it. Okay. You know where the last place that uh, Blackjack Tar and Leica Wu showed up was? Where is that? This delighted me. There is a Shang-Chi little golden book that came out a few months ago. <laughs> and there's a page of it where like, yep, that's Blackjack Tar and that's Leiko. There they are. That's so funny. I loved Aquafina. I thought she was great. I thought she was a wonderful addition to that movie. But I miss Leiko Wu. I just love Leiko yeah, Wu yeah. so much. Yeah. One of the things that I was that I was thinking going in the lead up to Shang-Chi was and, you know, when I saw that it completely diverged and was almost had no relation to the original whatever, I was like, okay, I can, I, I'm fine with that. Largely because I don't know if there's, you know, I, I just kept on going into it thinking, how is there any credible way for them to do a Master of Kung Fu Shang-Chi movie in a world in which Hong Kong is being crushed by China and no longer has any more relation to Britain. <laughs> and, you know, it's just like, and, and that Marvel has to cater to the Chinese market with all of this stuff. You know, how are you going to pull this off in any credible way? And I think the only real credible way to do it would just be to say, we're just throwing that out and doing something else entirely. We're doing Iron Fist instead. Right. But what I love about your chapter is that I saw on Steve's Facebook feed Steve was like, I think Steve or someone else was saying, oh, you know, the movie had so little to do with the comics. And then someone said in the Facebook feed, like, oh, well, that's great because all the comics were racist and Ugh. you had to throw away all the racism. So it's a good thing they didn't hmm. show anything from the first 30 years of the comics. And it was so painful for me to read because, yeah, there is a lot of racism in there. But, yeah, there's so much great writing. Like, Mitch was such a great writer, even though he was dealing with this racist source material. And it's very, very hard in our current society to say that, to say that there was racism, but you can't throw it all away. And you go there. You do that. You devote this chapter to going like, let's pick apart the shattered remains here, and let's go ahead and say, condemn the racism full-throatedly and condemn, you know, the fact that Fu Manchu was colored in this horrible, pale, piss yellow. And, you know, <laughs> there were all these horrible things about those Mensch comics. And there's, and yet you cannot throw them away. You cannot throw them away. And I thought that the work of reclamation that you did in that chapter was really worthwhile and really amazing and really brave. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I... I had a lot of fun writing that chapter. I also really struggled with that chapter and focusing on the letter columns and the way that mm -hmm. that there was a dialogue in that comic between the creators and the readers who were really invested in the story and were also really invested in convincing the creators to get it right. That's fascinating to me. And that these letters got printed in the comic itself and that that was that was an ongoing dialogue and it changed the course of the story that's amazing that was amazing i yeah. love that you found those and yeah. it's it's how you do it it's how you sort of redeem this you had to find some sort of evidence that mensch was thinking about these things and that was where you found your evidence and we got to talk to william Wu, who's fantastic 
yes, you actually track down the their their number one Asian American letter writer, and you track him down and interview him today. He was not hard to track down. Like he he is a really a pretty well known, very successful writer, and just a, a absolutely terrific guy. Yes, I love reading the old letters columns, and especially when you find all these people who then appeared later. And I recently I was reading the one of the things I'm doing that is similar to what you're doing is I'm currently reading three Thor sagas at the same time. I'm wow, reading because okay. uh, I'm reading with Steve. We're reading the Thor comics from 1963 with my right. son. I'm reading the Thor comics from 1968. And then I'm always reading a major project. I try to read the comics before they appear in the MCU. So I'm currently my big project for the next six months is I'm trying to read every Thor comic. So uh, wow. I'm reading the Thor comics okay. I haven't read. So I'm currently in the Mensch issues, speaking of Mensch. Oh, and wow. Certainly oh, Mensch, Mensch does not code himself in glory when he writes yeah, Thor. No. no. And, <laughs> and that's just not a good match. I mean, I just yeah. can't even see Mensch writing a good Thor. I mean, I love Mensch. Don't yeah. get me wrong. He's fantastic. But that just does not sound like a good match. No, it yeah. is not. And then Mensch leaves Master Kung Fu and Thor at the same time, and they replace him with Alan Zalentis on both books. So clearly they thought these two books had the same sensibility. But <laughs> at one point I'm reading it, and they're talking about Roy Thomas is writing the book, and Kurt Busiek writes in, and it's like going, oh, you know, Roy Thomas, you're doing such a good job on Thor. I wish you hadn't wasted all your time on Conan. No one can write that stupid character well. <laughs> and of course, Karpusiak ended up having an acclaimed many year run on Conan. I also um, love the, the letter that young Walt Simonson wrote in to uh, Tales to Astonish saying, like, yeah, um, Gene Colan's really good, but I really think his stuff is getting a little too stylized. <laughs> oh, young Walt, young Walt, let me tell you a thing or two. <laughs> yeah. I had a double laugh on that one because at first I was like, oh, saying that about Gene Cole. And then I'm like, oh, wait, Walt Simonson saying that about Gene Cole. Well, I, that was one, one of the points. I mean, obviously, anybody reading your book who is at all familiar with these comics is going to go like, but, 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 as they read. And I was having to be, while I was reading your book, I was reading it as I'm working my way through all the Thors, the Len Wein, Walter Simonson Thor issues. And okay. you were like, oh, you know, Simonson had had earlier been on Thor and hadn't it hadn't been a memorable era for the book or something like that. And I'm like, I love this era. I absolutely love the Wien Simonson. I tend to always think that Ween does a better job than he's remembered as doing. And I, it was such a joy for me to discover those. And then I got to the much more sort of acclaimed Thomas Buscheminary that comes after it. And I'm like going, okay, Thomas on Thor is basically the well, actually guy. He's like, <laughs> well, actually Thor is supposed to be red haired and have a beard. And actually Loki has a wife and actually this. <laughs> and, and I thought the Ween Simonson absolutely should be acclaimed and was a worthy forerunner to Simonson's later run on the book as writer and artist, which I'm greatly looking forward to now. Ween <laughs> is just such an uh, amazing idea guy. Like, he is. Panel for panel, like the, the, the actual text like does not often do a lot for me, aside from you know, like Swamp Thing and stuff. But just in terms of the characters he could come up with and just say so much about them so quickly, like really he, he was he was really really interesting that way so x-men is sort of the ideal situation for you where we creates the whole thing and then hands it off to another claremont who, who is not quite as good with the creating the characters but really great at fleshing them out yes 
Yeah. A, a perfect a perfect combo. Yeah. Well, I am greatly looking forward to it. I think that once Marvel takes over X-Men, I keep meaning to do a complete reread. Uh, so just reading your book just really gave me a lot of courage in terms of like, <laughs> I need to do a lot more of doing what you do instead of doing what I'm doing with my brother and doing what I'm doing with my son, reading every comic in order. And just, I would love to just do what I'm doing now with Thor. And I've been meaning to do the massive mutant reread <laughs> Wow. at some point here soon stopping at the end of the claremont you can't go past the end of claremont <laughs> beyond that way lies madness and then take then take take a deep breath uh go for a walk and then plunge into the grant morrison period yes just jump yeah. from jump from claremont to morrison yeah okay well uh, let's see i'm let me go through my notes and see if there was anything else i want to talk about um worst comes to worst i can sing the theme song <laughs> what, what theme song uh, I wrote a theme song for the book. I actually uh, brought my ukulele and played it. Oh my uh, gosh! On, on oh, we must hear this, please. All right, uh, get out it, your ukulele. All right, play uh, your theme song. Give, give me just a second. I will pull it up. Um, I will. Uh, it may take a moment to tune, but let's see. Oh wait, it's in tune. I was toting my short box up the stairway to my storage space when the ghost of Stanley appeared and. Got right up in my face, he said. Howdy, true believer. I said, Smiley, get thee gone. If you presented it, I've read it. You've got nothing left to sell me on. He said, Of course I do, Effendi. Let me have a look. I said, Nope, I've read through every Marvel superhero book. I read every one, Stan. I read every one, Stan. It was mostly fun, Stan. Shared them with my son, Stan. Comics by the ton, Stan. I read every one. I read Gamma Core, Cyforce, Omega Flight, Valkyrie Vision Vote, Lucky Venom, Space Knight, Nick Fury, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Jubilee, Spider-Man, Reptilian Rage, Monsters on the Prowl, and Creatures on the Loose, The Amazing Spider-Man, Fight, Substance Abuse, and I read every one stand. I read every one stand. It was mostly fun stand. Share them with my son Stan. Comics by the ton stand. I read every one. I read Strange Tales, Marvel Tale, Tales of Suspense, Punisher and Wolverine, Damaging Evidence, Human Darkness, Crypt, Shadows, Chamber of Chills, White Tiger, Winter Maker, Winter Soldier, Winter Kills, Codename Spitfire, Firestar, Blaze, Annihilation, Damnation, At Man, Last Days. I read every one stand. I read every one stand. It was mostly fun stand. Share them with my son stand. Comics by the ton stand. I read every one. I read U.S. Agent Captain Britain, X-Men Captain Universe, Doctor Spectrum, Doctor Strange, Linda Carter, Student Nurse, Blood Seed, Bloodstone, Blood and Glory, Blink, Blade, Inferno, and Human, The Infinity Crusade, Hercules, Prince of Power, Chaos War, Chaos King, Wonder Man, Giant Man, Giant Size Man Thing. I read every one stand. I read every one stand. It was mostly fun stand. Shared them with my son stand. Comics by the ton stand. I read every one. I read Dominic Fortune, Domino Hotshots, Mighty Thor, Mystic Mosaic, Magic Micronauts, Rom Rogue, Royal Ruins, Racket Raccoon, Marvel Now, Point One, Deadpool Too Soon, Thorcore, Marvel's Captain Marvel on the California, 15 Love, Fantastic Four, 1, 2, 3, 4. I read every one stand. I read every one stand. It was mostly fun stand. Shared them with my son stand. Comics by the ton stand. I read every one. I read each and every one. I read every one. <laughs> That was, that was wow. amazing. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, yeah, well, I uh, we we did not deserve that. that... <laughs> did you do that when you were out on the road? Did you bring I, your? I uh, my my friend who I was uh, traveling with and I brought our ukuleles. We did that at the beginning of every stop. So 
<laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing. Have you done that on a podcast yet, or is this the podcast interview? Uh, this is the only time I've actually done that on the podcast. Um, oh, wow. wow. Okay. Yeah. So we are honored. Thank you. That that is wonderful. Well, Mr. Woke Douglas, Thank this you. has been fantastic. You are our first ever guest. I feel like we're in awe of your of the work you did and of the writing that you actually did to do it because it's one thing to have an idea for a book and it's one thing to do the work for a book, but if you can't write it and, oh my God, I can't believe you rewrote the whole book from scratch, <laughs> then, then there's no point. But it's we we just greatly appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. It's, it's a pleasure. Okay. Well, um, Steve, do you have anything else to say? No, not, not nothing, nothing worth saying. So, uh, but just thank you very much for coming on board, dropping by and saying hi on our uh, humble little podcast here. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Well, I guess that this has been a special one-off episode. Um, thanks so much for coming on. We will, uh, and we'll uh, see everybody at home soon. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.